0: Absolutely. It depends on the uh, C.O.R. of the flagstick, so the co coefficient Restitution flagstick. In U.S. Opens, I'll take it out, and uh, every other tour event, when it's uh, fiberglass, I'll leave it in and bounce that ball against the flagstick if I need to.
1: Welcome back podcast patrons to another episode of leave the pin podcast as always i'm your host dan and we are coming to you live from the usga museum i've got my man scott as well as other dan uh, as part of the leave the pin crew tyler and derek unable to make it derek was unable to take a flight from california uh, Tyler had other things going on, which is all good, probably gambling associated problems. We have special guests today, Hillary Cronheim, as well as Janine Driscoll from the USGA Museum. And I cannot even begin to tell you the experience that we've had so far, but we're going to save that for a future podcast. This one, we're going to focus directly on Janine and Hillary. Ladies, how's everything going?
2: We're great. We've had such a fun day. Thank you guys for letting us, for indulging us, really. Wouldn't you say, Janine? I think we've had a great day. I can't believe
3: you guys are actually here. This
4: is amazing. I was going to say, it's really us who should be thanking you for indulging us in our golf nerdism. Uh, This was really incredible, so I'm really looking forward to hearing your answers to some of the questions that we have.
3: Well, you know, we're golf nerds, too, so you're in the right place. You're in golf nerd
2: headquarters right here. We love opening the drawers and sharing some of the treasures with fellow golf nerds. Just
3: let your nerdiness flow. Golf nerds, welcome
2: here. Right.
1: (laughs) so oh, that's that might be the next usga tagline i'll
2: leave that to janine more <laughs> I, mean, I think it sounds great personally. Mean, yeah
1: all right so one of the biggest things we're getting from followers on instagram and people that listen is where is this place located how come i have not heard of it um what they have all this cool stuff that's related to all the major championships and golf championships that the usga runs How come it's not on my radar? Um, Hiller, give people a little bit of the history of this house, how the USGA came to acquire it in kind of the middle of farm country, New Jersey, and where people can go, not only physically at the USGA house, but online to kind of consume the product that you have here.
2: Sure, happy to. Um, So the USGA obviously celebrated a big celebration last year, 125 years. So we were founded in 1894 um, in New York City. And uh, the museum itself was founded in 1936 as well in New York City and was really at that time an extension of USGA headquarters. So we had exhibits and displays in our office spaces. And as the history of the museum is pretty closely tied with the growth of the association as well. So as the USGA was growing and we were beginning to tackle different things, starting the green section, conducting more national championships, developing the rules, um, we found that being confined, finds probably not the right word, um, we needed a space that was a little bit larger. Um, there was talk of moving to different parts of the country so looking into some geographic diversity but ultimately we found this property that we're sitting on now here in what is currently liberty corner new jersey so we're about 30 miles or so um, west of manhattan um the usga purchased this building and 60 acres in 1972 so the house itself celebrated its centennial last year it was built in 1919 by Um, renowned architect John Russell Pope, who is probably best known for designing um, the National Archives, the Jefferson Memorial, and this is one of his best and most finely preserved examples of domestic architecture. So we actually have a lot of visitors who will come to the home um, just to see the architecture. Um, It was a family residence until the USGA purchased it in 1972. And over the years, we've sort of slowly converted it into what it is now, which is a state-of-the-art facility that chronicles the entire history of golf, primarily in the United States, but um, also in America.
1: So as we've toured the place, we have seen, I mean, just remarkable objects from Calamity Jane Putter to the club that was hit on the moon to, um, you know, civil rights in, in in the U.S. and how golf tied into that with not only clubs and balls, but everything from uh, cigarette packs to trading cards to anything that you could imagine. How many people does the USGA Museum employ to take care of all the archives and all the material that you have housed under the roof here?
2: So we have a staff of seven, um, which is small but mighty. Um we have um, in addition to myself two curators of collections and their primary responsibility is to take care of what we would call the three-dimensional objects in the museum and our exhibits in gallery spaces so making sure that everything is um, housed properly and cared for properly and um, their job is without question the most important one in the building because without their work Um, you wouldn't have been able to see anything that you saw today. Their main goal is to make sure that the objects um, survive for the next 125 years. And I should say, while the United States Golf Association is a golf organization, the museum is an interesting pod within the USGA in in that we are all first and foremost museum professionals. Um, We're all trained um, in various aspects of museum studies, and for us, Um, Golf is sort of the subject matter. So that's why you guys were sort of beholden to my nerdy collections care (laughs) (laughs) lectures earlier today. So we have two curators of collections who take care of um, our three-dimensional objects. We have a librarian who um, oversees the world's largest and most comprehensive golf library with over 100,000 items in more than 25 languages that also house the um, founding documents of the association and material related to our championships. We have two historians on staff. Um, Their primary functions are to execute sort of long-term scholarship projects, or sort of not only writing in golf history and talking about golf history, but also providing historical context for whether it's decisions that that are being made at the USGA at a high level, so things like rules modernization, amateur status modernization things like that we we support the organization internally that group does and we also answer about 3000 research requests a year and those are research requests everything from you know i'm looking for the pairing sheet from the 1953 us open to um, some of the wackiest questions we've gotten. You know, what was the brand of golf ball that Carrie Middlecoff hit out of bounds in the 19th <laughs> <laughs> at Aucoin, you know, um They also man a uh, research desk at the US Open with Janine's team, where we answer questions in real time for our media and broadcast partners. And um, it's a service we're, we're so proud of. We, we pride ourselves on sort of factual accuracy and, and being able to share our resources with everyone. And then we have um, a welcome ambassador, Karen, who's in charge of sort of our visitor services operation and making sure that the people who come physically to the museum have the best time that they can. So we're small but mighty.
4: And That's great. So how does the USG go, USGA go about acquiring trophies, memorabilia, all the things that are downstairs in the collection?
2: So we, our collection still continues to grow primarily through donation. Um, we actually purchased our first artifact in nineteen sixty nine. Um, so we rely heavily on donations from individuals, from champions, um, from host clubs, et cetera. Um, we do have a small acquisitions budget, um, which gives us, you know a little help to have the opportunity to purchase things. Um, increasingly, we're looking to collaborate with the USGA Foundation. Um, in the hopes that we can build sort of an acquisitions fund um, because we often do have situations that arise. Um, you know, it, it's difficult to predict what's going to come up, whether it's for auction or through a collector. We have great relationships with um, the golf collecting community and private collectors and dealers and auction houses. We work with them very closely. Um, but like every museum across across the world, we... Um, we certainly do need the support of um, donors as well. So that's something that we're hoping, you know, that I'm really focused on working on is bringing more awareness to what the museum is doing and trying to get people um, involved in terms of helping us with that. So we have, um, we're trying to grow the collection every year across four collections so the museum collection, the library, the film and video archive, and the photography collection.
0: So, one thing that you don't have to get donated, obviously, is the trophies. Uh, And obviously, that is one of the most impressive portions of the museum. So, just give us an idea of, you know, from start to finish about the trophies and what happens, you know, after we see it on TV. Does it go home with them or, you know, do they get a replica?
2: Sure. So, I would say the trophies are probably. If I'm not mistaken, Jeanine, when you say the best artifacts that we have in um, in the museum, um, we have all all of our trophies on display in the Hall of Champions. So we actually gave out our original trophies until um, 1985, when they sort of well, they were coming back with dings, and you know the Angel on the U.S. Open trophy was bent. There were some beer stains in the. Or ice cream stains.
4: (laughs) Um,
2: And just, as I said, our main focus is to take care of the trophies so that they survive and all of our artifacts um, longer. So we retired them in 1985, and they now live in the Hall of Champions permanently. So they do not leave the building. We have our engraver come on site once a year to engrave all of our trophies. It's actually the only time that they're taken out of the case. Please don't come on or talk to me during that week. I've never been. I'm never more nervous than on the days when all the trophies are out of the case. That's just.
1: All uh, right. So I've I've got to ask you then. Has there ever been any type of like calamity situation with them being removed? Uh, maybe a wrong letter being engraved on them. That's awesome. That's some professionalism right there. <laughs> nope. That's
2: right. Not on our watch. <laughs> Not on our watch. Ashley,
4: no. Can I, can I ask a question about the trophies? Because sure. you, you mentioned that's the one day a year they come out. Yes. What happens if Jack Nicholas or Tiger or someone, Annika Sorenstam, shows up and says, hey, can I, can I hold the trophy?
2: First of all, Janine would never do that to me. No. Um, so the trophies <laughs> would all come out. So Mondays were closed to the public. And we really use the time on Mondays. That's when we open our casework. Um, You know, we move artifacts around. We take things on exhibit, off exhibit, um, make changes to the gallery. So the trophy cleaning happens on a Monday. Um, If we had a champion come, first of all, I would hope Janine would let me know or someone on her team. They're great about that. Um, I... Uh, we don't let anyone else, aside from museum staff, hold the artifacts. Um, I, we do have champions come, and I do ask them to put on gloves to hold things that they've donated to me, which is, you know, I get some strange faces. Stu Hagestat, I made him put on gloves to hold the club that, that he donated to us. But from my perspective as a museum professional, once the object enters the building, um, it's my responsibility to make sure that it's there for the next 125 years so i you know i get strange faces from people or but i think what's important for the museum and for the usga is to convey that these are objects that are maintained at the highest most professional standards and it's the best way to care for the objects
1: yeah we we at the usga can take care of your items better than you can absolutely so it's not like You're losing it, it's just that you're giving it to the greater good of the golf community. I think that's one of the biggest things. When you come here, you see golf, not just in terms of the game, but how it impacts everything throughout life and society. And as golf nerds, it's one of those things where, you know, we love playing, we, you know, love complaining about it, we celebrate the highs and the lows, but. I think many of us don't realize how much it permeates into our everyday life. And just by going around talking with Janine and Hillary today and Dan, Scott, and myself, um, we have so much more in common, but golf becomes that, that bind that brings people together. And the USJ Museum does an amazing job at showcasing that and, and showing you that, hey, it's not just about hitting a ball with a club, finding it again, and, and, and doing that over and over 18 holes. It's, uh, it, it's a lifestyle. It has been with us through some of the most you know momentous events the the lowest of lows in, in US history and it's still there and what they're doing here is preserving that so people 50 75 100 years from now can see that in the same state that it is right now
2: absolutely that's our that's our main goal
1: so my my next question is is how often do you have to deal with private collectors auction houses etc cetera, etc cetera, in order to acquire things because obviously you know some of the things you have are just beyond amazing i mean just incredible like things you've only read about in books or seen online and instagram and you know on the internet and whatnot but you have them here and you can be within you know six seven inches of them um i don't want to get into specifics of what the budget is like but but how often do you send people out to auction houses how how often are people browsing online auction sites to find items
2: constantly um we have uh, great relationships with both auction houses and private collectors and dealers. So, um, we have, uh, we're regularly kind of monitoring what's available for auction and also participating in those auctions. Um, you know, it's, as I said earlier, it's a little bit difficult to predict what's coming up for auction and when, but because we have those good relationships, auctioneers or the dealers will often give us a heads up. Hey, this is a great, you know, an awesome object I think the USGA would be interested in. So that's sometimes helpful. Um, I'm constantly talking with private collectors and donors who, you know, are interested because of our collections care and our standards, they're interested in having their objects and their legacy be here at the museum. Um, So that's that's an incredibly important part of my job. Um, And as I as I said to you earlier, 85 to 90% of our collection grows through donation. So those are important relationships to be cultivated. And that spans across all collections, you know, the museum, the library, uh, the film collection, and the photography collection.
1: When the heads of those auction houses reach out to you, is it one of those things where they're going to say, look, you know, if you can give us this price, we'll give it to you? Or do you ever get into bidding wars with private collectors out there?
2: Oh, I it's get into bidding wars all the time. <laughs> um you yeah, know, I mean, we definitely don't get any special treatment from the auction houses. We do, they do give us a heads up that they're going to put something in the auction. So if it's something exceptional, that's helpful because we can have a little bit of advanced planning on our part and sort of look at our budget and see what's possible. We, but we absolutely do not get any special treatment, you know, because we're the USGA. Um, when we do bid at auction or on eBay, um, or wherever it is we do we do most of the time use an alias that has nothing to do with USGA because if you put USGA you know everyone thinks the USGA has an unlimited budget an unlimited museum budget which is false by the way um, so we do try to maintain sort of some anonymity but ultimately for the objects that are important we do our best to acquire them because of course they'll go on display in some cases and they can be shared and um, yeah hopefully that answered your question
0: well and during our tour we'd asked you earlier uh if there was anything that you really wanted and you would kind of touched on that they were just you know with either that person or uh with maybe a fan or something do you check in with those people every so often to see if they want to get rid of it or you know how does that work
2: yeah so we do have i wouldn't say we have a want list necessarily um we do have some things on the horizon, or things in our mind, you know, gaps in the collection, things that we would like to acquire. You know, often if it's things for champions, they're obviously very personal, from personal um, moments that they don't want to let go of, and it's not my job to literally pull it out of their hand and say, well, it should be here. I mean, oftentimes, you know, those situations are above me as the museum director. It's more, you know, could be a situation where mike davis would be chatting with the player for a specific item um those situations don't come up too much um but again it's like i said you never you never know um
4: okay how how do you decide what items go out on display and what items stay you know downstairs in the basement in the, the vault as it were
2: so we have about uh, 5% of our collection on display here in Liberty Corner, which um, sounds very small, but is actually pretty standard for museums. So you guys got a Lucky Ducks, a uh, behind-the-scenes tour, a little bit at collection storage where um, some of the good stuff is.
1: Now, real quick, don't don't start <laughs> telling people that because, you know, then they're going to start thinking we're like the bourgeoisie of, <laughs> of golf <laughs> podcasts. And, and, you know, Janine and Hilleroo beyond um, – generous to to take us down there and and all i can tell you is you know we'll talk about some of the things on a future podcast but it was just mind-blowing to see some of these cool things
3: we just really want to thank you for the uh, generous donation that you gave back to us, so that we could preserve history. Thank you guys history.
2: so much for endowing this building. And, for you to <laughs> still.
3: And in fact, yeah, we're we're going to take your business cards. We're going to put them down in the archives because this is history in the exactly. making. Right. Well,
1: here. It, uh, <laughs> as you walk in, once you walk in, you go right to the Arnold Palmer Room. One of the very coolest things there is the business cards of famous people in American history. Albert Einstein, Jonas Salk, you know, dudes like that. Um, You're just
3: definitely going in there next. That's, 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 Absolutely. right,
1: that's exactly what I'm saying. So, um, what, what process do we need to do to apply to put the Leave the Pin podcast card in there?
2: A large financial contribution to <laughs> the museum.
1: I've got a few stickers, uh, probably like eight bucks and a few business cards. Is that
3: the chewing gum that you have in your pocket could be an archive exactly for for the future i I could see a whole display might be
2: great exactly no we um you know unfortunately we're sort of confined by the space that we're in so we don't have um the luxury of being able to show everything on display so we do have sort of the best of the best um on display and some of the artifacts that are really iconic you know to the history of golf um Arnold Palmer's visor from the 1960 US Open, Ben Hogan's One Iron, the Moon Club, things like that. Those are objects that, because they're so iconic, we would not really take off display. But um, we're also really focused in finding opportunities to bring the collection out outside the walls of the museum and share some of the things in collection storage. So earlier today, we were talking about um, some of the baseball items we have. Jackie Robinson's golf bag and we have a Joe Lewis golf bag. Um, Amelia Earhart items, you know, really important stories in American history. And a lot of people don't know Amelia Earhart played golf. We have actually downstairs some um, um, a golf ball and a club head that was found in the rubble of the Twin Towers at 9-11. That's a really important story. Um, but one, you know, something like that that doesn't necessarily logically fit into the display of the gallery. So it's really difficult to try to get everything on display.
1: So you had mentioned that, you know, as little as 5% actually shows itself up to museum visitors and obviously leaving 95% down in the basement. Is there anything in the vault that is just too fragile, too precious to bring up? to museum visitors, or is that not the case at all?
2: Fragile in terms of, well, yeah, I mean, we certainly have um, some of our early metals, things that have um, ribbon on them, or some of the textiles, just because of the age and the material tend to be um, more vulnerable to, being on display for a long time. So, a couple of years ago, I mentioned we did this project where we reproduced all of the paper in the gallery. So, that would be an example. Um, you know, paper can only be on display for about three months. So, if we kept the paper on display for longer than that, the ink is going to deteriorate, especially with the handwritten ink, you know, then it disappears and you don't have anything left. Um, So most of the library items from the library in particular, we do put reproductions on display just because then we don't have to worry about how long they're out um, and we can rotate them with other things.
0: You touched on it earlier a little bit, but kind of a two-part question. Do pros come and visit often? Do they come at all? And with, uh, the US Open is going to be so close uh, this year. Do you expect to have pros here or are you holding any kind of event with the pros uh, just because it's going to be a wing foot?
2: So last we do have champions who come back um, as part of, you know, larger activities that are happening within the USGA. So most of those um, instances happen through Janine and her team. Um, And those are one of the best parts of my job is having a champion come in the Hall of Champions and see their name and see the trophy and just have a really um, amazing experience. So we do have that happen occasionally. And yes, I make them wear gloves, as I said. (laughs) Um, Last year at Pebble Beach, I had the opportunity to bring 12 artifacts, the best of our collection, to the Reunion of Champions, which was a reunion dinner with 33 of the 38 Six living US Open champions. And in my role, I I'm I'm laugh I'm making a face at Janine because in my role, I don't deal very much with the players. I'm like happily in this building dealing with the artifacts. So I was, of course, internally freaking out as sort of the champions were walking in. But part of my role there was to just share the US Open history. These were objects um, we had a club made and used by Horace Rollins in the 1895 U.S. Open. We had Francis, we Putter. putter um, and there's a great um, I, it was just such a wonderful interaction to introduce these um, U.S. Open champions to the museum and the history. Um, and a lot of them, I think, were really amazed and just like so in awe of what they were seeing and just talking about, you know, I recall vividly standing with Rory McIlroy and Martin Keimer and Curtis Strange, who were all looking at Hogan's one iron and saying, oh my god, look at the sweet spot on that hosel. And it was was cool to see those champions like be like little kids in a candy store, sort of looking at this golf history in, in real time. So that was kind of a unique experience for us. And to answer your question about Wingfoot, as a result of that experience, Um, I'm collaborating with some of my friends in the championships team, and we're actually going to have a U.S. Open history experience at Winged Foot this year in 2020. So we're going to be bringing some objects from the museum to Winged Foot and to be able to share that experience with spectators. It was great to do it last year with the champions. We shared it with the media, um, but not everyone has the opportunity to come to Liberty Corner, and the U.S. Open is sort of – Golf's grandest stage, and certainly important for the USGA. So, would love to have everyone come and and visit us there and see some of the gems of gems of the collection. And in terms of um, programming, that's something we're working on with Jason Gore and his team. We've got um, we got Gary Woodland's wedge from Pebble. So, thinking, could we do something, you know? That stuff happens early in the championship. I learned this from the US Open by everything sort of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right Janine, cuz they by Wednesday people are super focused on the on the championship. So, it's entirely dependent on what they're doing, but
3: Yeah. That's exactly right. And I think Hillary, what you talked about is important for everybody to know because you truly don't know that the US Open is great until you think about who won it and you think about the great stages that it has been played on through time. So people often think about history as a, as a black and white photo and people that have come before, but really when you think about the greatness of the US Open, it's about the, the, the stories that have come from this championship. And if we can bring that to life, we can bring that to more people and we can engage one more kid in the game because they're so amazed by Jack Nicklaus and Tiger and Gary Woodland and Rory McElroy, then we've done something good for the game for the future.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of golfers nowadays would have a greater appreciation of the clubs that they play and the courses they play when they can look back 100 years, 50 years or so, and see the equipment that was used back in the day. And see, uh, we, we looked at the one women's exhibit playing in, in corsets and long skirts and heavy tweed jackets and hats. And these, you know, leather boots that went, you know, halfway up their their calf. And you figure, how in the world could that be comfortable? And then you look at the scores that they shot. So walking through the museum here is is literally walking through a living historical aspect of the game of golf. And you mentioned the champions, Janine. And if you look at the champions for just the U.S. Open, not even all the other uh, USGA championships that are held and run by the USGA. But if you look at just the U.S. Open, it literally is a timeline of a who's who in golf so i want to pose this question to you because we got a lot of instagram questions on this um one of the things people say all the time is oh the usga why are you going there they ruin a major every single year they make the course super hard every single year all the pros do is complain every single year well let's be honest we talk about it all the time on the podcast Pros love to complain because that's what pros love to do. Their entire life is catered towards them. So you put a centerline bunker in, you shave the greens, you have them running at a 13 and a half or so. Yes, they're going to complain because they're not comfortable with that. Um, first off, I guess, what would you say to those peop- to maybe the uninformed people out there that have that misconception of the USGA? And then secondly, what is your role when it comes to the US Open? Like, and especially, specifically at Wankfoot. A lot of questions there let's just go into this so
3: happy these questions are for janine <laughs> okay. sorry just had
1: to say that so let, well, let's let's
3: for all of us though i mean so it, great questions number one uh, the u.s open was designed and it was uh, originally conducted to be the national championship this wasn't a tournament that was being conducted every single year and it was conducted because these golf clubs that existed in America were trying to uh, claim that they had the best championship in America. And so they needed an independent body that would say, this is the guy, this is the woman, because we had our US Women's Am in the first year as well. These are the people that exemplify everything about the US Open. So if you talk to the US Open championship team who are incredible people, uh, men and women who are setting up golf courses and men and women who are trying to conduct a championship. Their primary goal is to identify a champion, not to punish one. So it is about taking the best of the best and it is about testing your physical ability, your mental ability. It, It is the grind over a four day period and it is to elevate your skill, not to punish it. So if you hear through history, this is again, Hillary through you, you talk about Jack Nicholas, who will tell you, I loved playing the US Open every year because I could go into the locker room and I could hear the guys in the locker room saying, oh, this is awful and it's terrible. And he'd, he'd go in and he'd say, knock that guy out, knock that guy out because he knew that they couldn't compete at that level, so that's exactly why we conduct the U.S. Open to elevate those kinds of people and that kind of talent.
2: I actually have to say, just from that reunion of champions experience, um, the champions after the sort of cocktail hour went behind closed doors without Mike Davis or Mark Newell. It was just the champions in the room, and I had the privilege, since I was babysitting the artifacts, of being outside that door, but the focus of the dinner was for them to talk about what the U.S. Open meant to them. And the 33 of them in a room without any media, without the USGA there, without, you know,
4: their a microphone. without a
2: microphone, yeah. were really candid. I mean, the things that they said really brought you to tears. And they really feel, I think, that it's a, it's a really... Um, significant, meaningful thing to win the national championship.
3: It's why looking at those artifacts meant so much to them, because they're golfers. We're all golfers, too. And for us to be able to continue history and to be a part of that living history that's happening right now is important. It's important.
1: So I posted a video of that that Don Cheadle USGA US Open video, and I was like, "That fires me up." But I'm telling you what, like that Janine fired me up right there. Like That's I'm right. ready to go, <laughs> put in my application, drop my years. handicap, yeah, and get to the US Open.
3: Greatness it should be elevated because it's hard. We're challenged, and it's it's the great American story, right? It it's architecture, and it's. Uh, mathematicians and it's these great people. Greatness is defined by overcoming challenge and that's what we want to define. We want those golfers to understand that they have been rewarded for having unbelievable skill and that's how you should feel about the US Open.
0: So as we talk about how hard the US Open usually is, can you please give me your reaction as Phil Mickelson was chasing his ball down the green what was your personal your personal reaction when he was doing that
3: you know the one thing you can you know about phil one thing that we as the usga staff are cheering him on because we want him to win that us open we we want him to win it we we want him to have his moment in history because he's an amazing golfer and we also feel the pain that he feels of of the struggle because the us open is a struggle and so You know it's again it's we don't want anybody to struggle but we know that the game is hard the game it challenges you and it challenges you mentally and and for us just to be able to watch that and to be able to understand through the lens of history that he wants it and that it means so much to him makes it mean so much to us and it makes us feel that we want to do everything that we can in order for his skill to rise to the top.
0: I'm actually impressed by the answer because it's not like you're even mad at him. You actually kind of empathize with him, which is not actually what I expected you to say, but I'm actually kind of glad that's what you have to say about it.
3: Listen, we want, we want everybody to respect the game because we do and because we love it. And... We absolutely know because we've watched Phil's career through his amateur career and through his junior career how much he loves the game. So let's just continue to cheer him on.
1: So as a, I believe, five-time runner-up, Scott's going to fact-check that for me right now. Is that do you know? Do you have Hillary? To, Hillary? You know. Yeah. Every, okay. Everyone's going to fact-check mode. I've, <laughs> I'm not the story. So I, I believe as a as a five-time runner-up. Hope for that. Um, you mentioned, you know, he's part of the fabric of American golf. I mean, we've seen Phil grow up from winning a tour event as an amateur, um, rising through the ranks and getting his first Masters, which was his first major. And obviously, the story of Phil is probably not complete. Six-time runner-up. Okay, so the story of Phil is not complete without the, the U.S. Open. Um, coincidentally, the U.S. Open is coming to Wingfoot this year, source of maybe Phil's biggest meltdown in history. Um have have any of his people reached out at all about the the, the grandiosity of, of of this event and, and and what might become?
3: Yeah, that I, I think that's above all of our pay grades. I'm not sure about that at all. But what I what you can see through the lens of history is golf and redemption, and about this thought of being again a, able to overcome obstacles and to be able to persevere. So I think that's. The delightful part about it and that's why everybody's going to be lining the fairways watching him because everybody wants him to to win so let's all do that together and cheer him on
4: so you you mentioned before that you got some of the trophies back dented or with ice cream stains are there any crazy did i say that (laughs) (laughs) just kidding are there any crazy stories that you of things that you know happened or are those kind of things that you're not really at liberty to discuss
3: yeah you'd know that better than I do. I will tell you, um, in recent years, one of um, my favorite moments is, we've reinstituted the fact that during the US Open, after the champion wins, they actually get to come behind the scenes and they get to watch their name being engraved onto a trophy. So, you'll have guys that are, I mean, they've they've just won the US Open. This. this is amazing and they're tired and they're exhausted and they're also drinking beer right. and they're just trying to celebrate, you know, the adrenaline is going and just being able to have those quiet moments when they're next to their kids or they're next to their father and they're watching their name being engraved beside Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods and all of these great names. And it's just, it, for me, it's, it's the quiet in the room once you see that. And once you see, you're the next name in history that really becomes amazing. And that, it, so it, there are moments and I, I think a lot of the players, I think one of the moments that we documented was Gary Woodland with the trophy um, as we were flying to New York to celebrate his victory and just his quiet moment, just looking at the trophy that I, I that the kinds of, of moments that a champion has with the trophy are pretty darn special.
2: Again, from my perspective, you know the crazy look on the champion's face. Like, why would you want this hat or this ball or this, um, you know, this Mm -hmm. shoe? Exactly, because they're not. Sometimes they're not always aware in real time that they're making history or that you know their object is going to be in the USGA Golf Museum, sort of for eternity. And um, it's fun. It's fun to kind of see them take it all in after their win.
3: And that's that's why we do what we do is because history is happening now and we are trying to preserve history so that it, your grandkids and your great grandkids can hear the stories of, of Gary Woodland and all of these people that are, um, that are showing us what golf is like in 2020 that we'll be able to share with anybody 50 years from now.
1: I think one of the things that, that both of you two do astronomically well serves as just great ambassadors for not only the game of golf, but the USGA itself. I think one of the mindsets that people have out there is, oh, the USGA is upper crust. It's stuffy. It's just like the, the Royal and Asian Club, just like the Green Jackets at Augusta and... I mean, if you had that mindset, and if you've spent the last two, three hours with us here and with Janine and with Hillary, I think that would be completely washed away. Um, We talk so much about the advent of nine-hole courses, short courses, playing three-hole loops, not keeping score, not worrying about your handicap, just plugging it in, whatever happens, happens. Um, that's, That's one of the coolest things to me is that they are golfers just like us. Just because they work for the USGA doesn't mean that... Their their mindset has changed. They're they're still golfers at heart. And I think what people need to get out of their minds is that the USGA is only the quote unquote rules and that they are dictators of the rules. You need rules in society. I mean, otherwise you live in an anarchistic society and that's not going to work, especially with golf. So when you're out there and you're playing and you're not taking a proper drop, like that's fine and all. But if you want to play at a competitive level, uh, a USGA certified championship, let's say, whether it's the four ball, the mid-am, anything along those lines, rules need to be in place. Um, so being here today gave us such a greater than what I think we ever would have imagined we had, a greater appreciation of what the USGA does for the game. Uh, real quick, Janine, I just want to mention something and ask you about the new handicap system that everyone's kind of up in arms over with. Sure. When, Why
3: are they up in arms? I, I don't know. I don't get this. This is so great for the game. You made Love it. the
1: most simplistic comment, and it was plug the score that you shot into the app, and you're done. Why are we worrying about these things?
3: I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, when we are talking to people about the World Handicap System, which, by the way, was eight years in the making, trying to get six different systems to connect around the world and to have everybody talk about the game of golf together, amazing. But so many people are so worried about the algorithm. The the one thing you should take away from this is we're the golf nerds. We've done all the math for you. And by the way, I'm a Comm major, so I I can't even do the math. Uh, But it's plugged into the app and it's plugged in to your kiosk at your golf shop. So all we want you to do is play golf and post your score we increased the 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 handicap limit up to 54 to invite more people to have a handicap because everybody thinks that i can't have it cuz i have to be uh, at a golf club and i have to be a member and i have to play competitive golf no no you don't get a handicap the second thing is it only takes 54 holes to establish a handicap that's three rounds that's six nine hole rounds just go ahead and grab it and don't worry about it just go ahead and play because we've done the math for you and we hope everybody gets a handicap because it's an amazing equalizer in the game it's what makes our game great you can play it from the time you're young until the time that you are well into your senior year and still play an equitable game and that's what the handicapping system is all about
4: and and speaking of just you know going out and playing just in talking about all the offerings of the museum there's a really amazing putting course you know behind it where did the idea to include that in the you know offerings of the museum come from
2: i'm not sure to be honest that was frankly that was a little (laughs) bit before my time but um as part of the renovation to the museum from 2005 to 2008 when we Um, added about 16,000 square feet. We were trying to think of ways to sort of upgrade the visitor experience in general and give people a reason to come to the museum, spend a little more time, stay a little longer, and also um, draw a younger crowd, more engaged crowd. So now our Pines putting course behind the museum is a uh, course designed by Gil Hans, modeled after the Himalayas putting course at St. Andrews, which if anyone has ever played, I mean, good luck. we allow, uh, sorry, we offer visitors the opportunity to play with replica putters. So you can choose from, you can choose a um, Old Tom Morris putter, a Schenectady putter, or a Calamity Jane putter, and then play with the souvenir golf ball that they can take with them. I will say, actually, we have quite a fierce uh, staff putting competition at the USGA, and drive, chip, and putt, and just some really great. Um, activities as a way, you know, I was saying the museum staff were kind of museum professionals first. Um, most people don't know that not everyone at the USGA actually plays golf. Um, people people who work at the USGA, some of them aren't even interested in playing golf, but the putting course is a great approachable equalizer, equalizer and great way for us all to get out and spend some time together um, when we're when we have some downtime um, to. It to be together,
3: I, th- I think one of the important things to remember is go- golf is a sport and it's a, a, a recreational sport and it's for everybody. And you know, I, I know from my years at Pinehurst when uh, we used to hold the still do the, the U.S. Kids Golf Championship, and you see a six year old, it's it, 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 golf is about hitting an object on the ground with a stick so it at its fundamental pieces you can engage anybody in the game if you just put the club in their hand and tell them to go use that stick to hit an object and it's innate for a kid so if we can get anybody on our campus to have a club in their hand and be able to hit a ball they'll be just as hooked as we are and that's exactly why we want to have golf on this campus and why we want people to be able to have a club in their hand because we know that they're gonna get hooked. It's not about digging into a rule book or even the history so much as getting people to play.
0: Yeah, as we had talked about before, we think that is just as important part of what's here as is what's in the museum. Uh, Touching on what's in the museum, we want our listeners to know if you could take one thing home with you and keep it forever, what would each of yours be?
2: I'm not answering because I wouldn't let you guys take anything home. <laughs> and if I found out you took something home, we would have a big problem. No, I think Dan wants to know what
1: your favorite thing is.
2: Well, I wouldn't take it home. Spoken like the truth.
3: You know, I, I, I love the story that history, um, that Hillary just told about the moon club and the fact that it was sitting in somebody's living room for two or three years before it was donated to us. So for me, it's like, yeah, there's the moon club. It's just sitting over there. You know, we, we were able to hit a ball on the moon and, and it's okay, just I'm sitting kidding. right in your living room. So I, I'm fascinated by the thought of just, you know, having a club in the corner going, yeah, that came from, that came from the USGA Golf Museum. I, I am also personally in love with our art collection because it's amazing and it's deep. And um, I, I am a great lover of art and the fact that people are thinking about including our, our most recent exhibit uh, of this thought of golf architecture being art. And uh, that inspires me quite a bit, so.
2: Love that. Piggybacking on to that, yeah, I would say. Um, so I mentioned to you guys earlier, we have uh, an amazing fine art collection, and we have a Rembrandt in our collection. And I'm a historian of Dutch and Flemish art, so every year during my birthday week, the curator of collections actually brings the Rembrandt upstairs and hangs it in my office, <laughs> and that's you know just as good. That's as I said, I never take it home, right? but um, that's that's really exceptional. But in terms of, I think the bell of the ball, um, no question, is our women's amateur trophy. Um, which is our oldest trophy from 1896, which was donated by a Scottish member of parliament and just has these beautiful um, enamel drawings on it and precious gemstones. And the story of the USGA promoting women's amateur golf from the very beginning. I mean, we had our first women's amateur in 1895 when we had our first US amateur in US Open is, is such an amazing story that we've been advocates of that from the beginning.
1: And you mentioned an interesting fact, which I don't want to let go by the wayside, but the entire USGA Museum staff is all female, correct? We are. Yes. The fact
3: that we're sitting here now and we're two young, hip chicks and we don't have blazers on should tell you everything about the
1: USGA. There there you go, moving forward. Um, So, you know, we've monopolized a ton of your time today, which we could not be more thankful for, seriously. But can you give people... Just a little bit of information of address, location, uh, how to get in touch, maybe social media channels, and also what they should expect when they come to the museum.
2: Sure. So we're um, located at 77 Liberty Corner Road in Liberty Corner, New Jersey, which um, is about 30 miles west of Manhattan, close to Morristown, for those of you that are familiar um, with New Jersey. We're open Tuesday through Sunday from 10 to 5. As I said, Monday is that kind of behind the scenes. Let's do all the fun stuff. Um, You're welcome to come anytime and tour the museum. And our putting course is open. Sorry, guys. You didn't get to benefit from that, even though it's a spring day today. um, Our putting course is open from about March through October. Um, And welcome people to come putt at that time. Um, What was the other part of your question? (laughs)
1: Uh, just I'm social sorry. media channels that oh, they can sure. find information. And, and honestly, does the USJ Museum have its own social media handle? It should.
2: It definitely should. Yeah. We're, well, g- we're Mi- going to have a Mike, meeting about this. Mike, absolutely.
1: Mike, let's get on that, Mike Davis, sure okay?
3: So I think, I think Mike would champion that, too. There's Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind.
1: Well, if, it. if you're interested in that, uh, I've got some free time and can easily run that Instagram handle as well.
3: Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, at USGA and at US Open, at US Open Golf is where you're going to find it on just about any channel. But really important to know, and we were talking about this before, our our film library, our, our photographic library is, is important to us. You can find that um, on USGA.org, but we also have our own channels that you can look at through uh, Apple TV and uh, streaming, where we are actually streaming a lot of our historic uh, videos, historic films... And that's where all of our stories really come to life and everybody can see them. Uh, YouTube especially, it's a, a big part of what we do and really important for everybody to just feel that part of golf history.
1: Awesome. Well, again, on behalf of Dan and Scott and myself and then Derek and Tyler who couldn't be here, um, we could not have been happy with the way that the day went. Uh, You have been more than gracious and we absolutely loved our time here. Also, we would be remiss if we did not thank the USGA for christening the podcast with its name. Leave the pin. And that was all due to the USGA and their rule changes this year.
3: We're here for you.
1: We appreciate that. Yeah, thank
2: you guys so much for coming. It's just, uh, it's such a fun part of my job to take, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, fellow golf nerds around, you know, people who are really interested in the history. That's how we identify. uh, Yeah, interested in engaging with it. So um, you're welcome anytime um, to... Happy to share things with you.
3: Yeah, the campus is open to everybody. So we we'd love for more people to be here and to know that this isn't this this is open to the public and it is designed to get more golf nerds into this building and to engage them with everything that is great about the game. And if we do this right, this museum is here for you, not for us.
2: Yep. And for those of you who might be at Winged Foot next year. Um, just another come on in come on to the u.s open history experience we're gonna have um we're gonna have some gems which we're looking forward to as well
1: yeah i think that'll be great for people especially practice rounds tuesday wednesday maybe they don't want to spend all day at the course unlike you know thursday through sunday tournament proper uh what a great side trip to piggyback on to your vacation uh at the u.s open this summer uh ladies thank you so much it has been absolutely incredible and as always people either get busy golfing or get busy dying we